Hi, this is Liz Ryan, and this is the Work-Related Podcast, Episode 7. We talk about work and the workplace and how to thrive at work and get more of what you need out of work and what you deserve and how to be the CEO of your career and how to be a better leader and how to evolve work to make it more human. So we got a few topics to speak about today, and if you have a question for me, Please write to me and I'll try to address your question in a future podcast. You can reach me at support at humanworkplace.com. That's our company, Human Workplace. And our mission is to reinvent work for people. So the first topic we're going to get into today is counteroffers. Counteroffer, of course, is when you have a job, but you interview for another job and it's offered to you. You get an offer letter and you go back to your workplace and you tell your boss you're going to be leaving because you've accepted another offer and they say, hang on, don't go. We're going to make you a counter offer. It's a very common thing, especially right now. According to LinkedIn, the average person who changes jobs across everything, across industries and years of experience, the average person who changes jobs right now gets a 15.4, I think, 15.5% pay increase for changing jobs. That's a lot. 15% for changing jobs. If you're earning $60,000, you get an extra $9,000 just for changing jobs. That tells you that salary compression is really real. Salary compression is the thing, the phenomenon when you stay in a job for a while, you don't keep pace with the marketplace because you're getting a two, three, four percent annual increase, and that's not what's happening in the outside world. So if you were out in, out in the the marketplace, you would your pay would be rising faster. But you're not out in the marketplace. You're in this sort of sheltered inlet. You're in your company, and there your pay is unlikely to keep pace with the market rate because of salary compression. It's um, virtually guaranteed when you stay in a company for several years because they have policies that say, here's the most you can get in an annual pay increase. And the, the market doesn't care about a policy. It's going by supply and demand. So notwithstanding these awful tech layoffs that have been going on, people are still getting 15, more than 15% pay increases by changing jobs. So what does that tell you? If you stand to get 15% more pay by getting jobs, then you're losing money by stay staying where you are. And that's been the case for as long as I've been an HR person, going back to the 80s, probably before that. Although back in the 80s, people did get good chunky pay increases at staying at the same job. There was more awareness that they could leave and it would be more expensive to replace them and train their replacement than it would be to uh, to just pay them more wasn't uncommon for people to get six, eight percent increases back then. And if they did a really great job, 10%. Now you can still get that 10%, but you got to most likely change jobs. Another reason why, um, why you get more money for changing jobs than staying put is that it's much harder now to get promoted. Companies used to really take pride in the career paths internally. And actually I did a lot of consulting work even in the in the aughts, in the first decade of the uh, 21st century, helping companies with this career path issue. 
And so did lots of other consultants, but now it's not, for many folks, not as much of an issue. Um, and that's probably bowing to the reality that people don't stay with companies as long. Chicken and egg problem, right? Why don't they stay? No career path, no chance for advancement. So they leave. Well, there's no point in us creating career paths. Obviously, some companies do a great job at this. I'm not trying to paint everybody with the same brush, but it's certainly not the wholesale high priority topic it used to be in HR and leadership. Although leadership bench strength and the availability of leaders is always an issue. It's always an issue for companies, large and small. Okay, so we got salary compression going on. So that's an incentive for people to take a look at what's happening out in the marketplace. And they do, especially if a recruiter reaches out to them and says, hey, would you like to interview for a job with my client? XYZ company over here. And so let's say you're at your desk and you're working. Maybe it's home, maybe it's someplace else. Maybe it's not a desk, but whatever kind of job it is, you hear from somebody that says, I got a client that has a job opening and you seem like you could be qualified for that job. Why don't you go on the interview? And you say, all right, if it's after hours, doesn't really hurt me to get on the phone with someone or get on a Zoom call or even go to their office. Let's do it. And they go and they go through the process. It's you, you go and you get the offer. Now you have to give notice. You give notice to your boss and they say, no, 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 no. We don't want you to leave. We're going to make you a counter offer to stay. Give me 24 hours to put the counter offer together. Maybe they do get back to you in 24 hours. Maybe it takes longer, but either way, you got to think about what am I going to do about this counter offer? Am I going to take it or am I going to go to this other company? So here I've got for you 10 reasons not to accept a counter offer, 10 reasons to reject the counter offer. Tell your boss, thank you so much for putting this counter offer together, but I'm not going to take it. I'm going to leave and best wishes to you and everybody else here in the company. 10 reasons. First reason not to accept a counter offer is that you went to all the trouble of job hunting. So you had a good reason to do that because even when recruiters contact us and they're very flattering and it feels good to hear that you have great skills and great experience, it is a hassle to job hunt and it's a hassle to change jobs. And so you must have had some incentive to do that. So to throw that whole idea away and say, no, 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 my current employer matched the compensation in the offer that I received. So I'll stay with them. Uh, I'm not sure that's in your best interests. That's the first reason not to accept a counter offer. Fear of change is a real thing. It's a, it's a human thing and it affects us at work a lot. It affects us in every part of our lives, but fear of changing jobs is a real thing. It's different people you have to meet. It's different standards and metrics you're going to be evaluated against. It's just different and change is hard and we tend to resist it. And at one moment you were ready to surmount that fear of change because you went on that interview. Now you got an offer. Don't fall back into, eh, I'll just stay in this company. It's good enough. Is it good enough? What's going to grow your flame the most? That's one reason. we got nine more. Reasons to reject a counteroffer. Here's a big one. Number two, do you really want to keep working for people who will only pay you fairly when they're forced to? They knew the market rate. 
Why were they able to come back to you with a counteroffer so quickly? They know you were underpaid. Now, their big uh, a stand to keep you is they're going to pay you what somebody else would pay you. Uh, thanks, but these people don't even know me and they were willing to pay me more. You guys know me and you're only willing to pay me what I'm worth when another company comes up with a letter. Is that the relationship you want with your employer? Really think about that. They're going to always be playing catch up. They're playing chicken with you if they underpay you. 15% is the average increase for changing jobs. That's your employer playing chicken with you and assuming you will not leave because it's a hassle and they can keep underpaying you. It's kind of gross when you think about it. I think you deserve better. The number three reason not to accept a counteroffer is that now they know you're unhappy or at least unhappy enough or restless enough to think about changing jobs. You, you sort of came out with this news that you had been interviewing. They're going to start thinking about replacing you. They have to. That's not even rude or impolite. That's prudent because you indicated that you might not be around all that long. This is called a flight risk, right? You indicated, you said, I got another offer and I'm planning to accept it. Well, boom, of course, they're going to put you high on a list of people who might leave and they're going to start looking for your replacement. It's not a comfortable way to work. Reason number four not to accept a counteroffer is that studies show that most people who accept a counteroffer, they're gone within six months. It's just the energy shifted, the energy shifted. Let's never lose sight of the importance of the energy in the relationship between you and the place where you work. Once you say, hey, I'm ready to go, maybe they can give you some money to keep you for a while, but right, it's, it's probably just not the right place anymore. Number five, this is a big one of reasons not to accept a counteroffer is that you're gonna burn a bridge when you reject uh, an offer that was made to you by another company to accept your counteroffer from your current employer you're going to burn a bridge with really decent people who were willing to pay you the right amount upon meeting you. And you're going to do that and burn that bridge to stay with people who have already underpaid you and only paid you appropriately when they had to. Come on. That's not you and your power. It's just not. I want you in your power, getting paid what you're worth without having to show up with an offer from someone else. That's so lame. Think about that. Number six, maybe they're giving you more money in the counter offer, but money is probably not the only issue that got you to think about job hunting. A bigger paycheck will not solve those other problems. And it won't even solve the pay problem because if a company has let you slip into salary compression, it's going to happen again, right? They gave you a one-time pay increase. They didn't put you on a schedule, I'm guessing, where you get regular pay increases to keep you level with the market. And why would you feel like you wanted to look out for that and have to stay on them, right? When they've already shown you once that they were not, they were asleep at the wheel, right? Okay, number seven, reasons to reject a counteroffer. Change is hard. It's, changed, it's, it's hard for all of us. Change is just hard. It's scary. We can reinforce that fear by saying, that's okay, I'm not going to change. Tell your sweetheart, no, it's okay, I was going to change jobs, I'm not, I'm not. What? 
this was your big, this was your big opportunity. No, no, I'm going to stay. So, so you're going to stay. What does that even mean? What does the future look like? You're going to stay. How long are you going to stay? Have you abandoned this plan to sort of grow your flame and step out there, occupy more space? No, I don't know. I'm just going to stay. You know what I mean? Change is hard. Do you want to reinforce that fear of change or do you want to step through it? Step through it and say, hey, whatever happens, when in doubt, take the new path, the new path that you never took before. Take the new path. Take the fork in the road, right? Rather than sticking with the thing you've been doing for the sake of avoiding change. Number eight, a question. What do you hope or expect to accomplish in your remaining time with this company that you haven't accomplished already? And if you know what that thing is that you want to add to your resume and your muscles and your skill set, has the company committed to help you reach those goals? Or are they just trying to keep you around a little while longer? Because those are two very, very different propositions, very different concepts. Okay, number nine, reasons not to accept a counteroffer. The companies that deserve your talents are the ones that pay you fairly when you don't bring them somebody else's offer. And number 10, reasons to reject a counteroffer is now that you gave notice and they presented you with a counteroffer, if you accept it, you have an arrow on your back, not an arrow, a bullseye, a target. You have a target on your back because it's not in their best interest to invest in you anymore. They kept you, but they kept you at the brink. They kept you when you had one foot out the door. Like I said, it's prudent for them to start thinking about life without you. Take the other offer. Try something new. Step out there. Step into your power. Take the road less traveled. Do the new thing. That's my advice. All right. So reasons not to accept a counteroffer. I got a question. Hi, Liz. You wrote about how managers should avoid asking their employees personal questions, but it's a very big theme in my company to be more than a manager, to be a friend, mentor, and supporter to your employers, employees. How do you reconcile this? Okay. That's a great question. A lot of people got very, um, you know, confused about what I wrote recently um, about managers asking intrusive questions. I have to tell you, this is a popular theme in my inbox at support at humanworkplace.com and also my inbox on LinkedIn is managers crossing boundaries. And it's very easy to see why that happens. We work maybe in close quarters or we're in close communication at work. And so managers who have a very specific relationship with the people who work on their teams, they can easily cross boundaries. And the example given was a manager who asked several questions that the employee person who wrote to me, the employee found, uh, found these questions inappropriate. One was, are you still dating that woman, Marcy? She seems nice. Employee didn't feel like it was an appropriate question to ask about his dating life, you know? And I agree. I think it's very easy. We all make social faux pas and it's very easy to fall into asking a person who works with you. Um, about their social life, but it's not appropriate, especially when that person is a member of your team. It's crossing a boundary. We never want to forget that managers have a power, unequal relationship with 
the employees on their teams because of the managerial relationship, manager, subordinate, employee, whatever relationship. And so asking a question that a person might feel obligated to answer because of the managerial stature of the person who asked them is, is always not a good thing. It's not a good decision, right? Even if you have a friendly relationship, are you still dating that woman, Marcy? No, actually, there's a horrible story associated with that. No, obviously, that's not a good question to ask someone who works for you on your team because they may feel like there's pressure on them to answer and they may not be comfortable getting into that with you, their manager. But the other question that this person uh, uh, to whom I responded in a post on LinkedIn, the other question the manager asked them was, they actually said to the whole team, I'm going to be sitting down with everyone one-on-one and asking you about your five-year career plan so that I can help you, I, as your manager, can help you accomplish that plan, whatever it is. And the person who wrote to me said, this is a problem for me, this upcoming one-on-one meeting with my manager about my five-year career plan, because I don't want to be working here in five years or really working anywhere I want to start my own company. And I don't want my manager's advice on that. My manager does not strike me as really like an entrepreneurial business advisor, but more to the point, I don't want to announce myself as someone who doesn't want to be working uh, on a payroll five years from now. I don't, that's crossing a boundary again. And so I'm forced to, I think somehow, you know, not tell the full truth to my manager and say, you know, I'm not sure I have some ideas. I'd like to maybe cultivate these skills or those skills, things that the company could offer the, the letter writer. But, you know, it's not that cool to cross that boundary and assume that my life outside of work that is, my future beyond this job is my manager's concern. They say they want to help me, but why would they be able to help me? This letter writer also mentioned that they have a coworker in the same department who's also concerned, a little bit concerned, about this upcoming one-on-one meeting with the manager because the coworker is an actor, they're a performer, and they've been getting a little traction with their roles, but not nearly enough to quit the day job, and they plan eventually to quit the day job. So they as well have to kind of, you know, dance around that topic. This is a real issue, managerial overreach. And it comes from this paternalistic view that we have of employment and management, especially in the United States. Um, A lot of people don't know that 150 years ago, there were company towns. You had to live in the company town and go to the company church and send your children to the company school and buy food for your family using scrip. Instead of instead of money, the company would give you scrip uh, that was only good at the company store. So, you know, just think about that. It's very, very, very intense. It's a semi-plantationistic kind of thing. Surf, serfdom, feudal, F-E-U-D-A-L. And, uh, and this was extremely common from the earliest days of the United States. Up around me in New York State, there are these manors that were established by like you know, King George, the one that uh, that was on the throne when um, when they were starting to talk about revolution in the colonies. And these manors, it, George and his cousins and family members would just give plots of land to their rich friends and they would stick a big baronial house on the property and have tenant farmers who were serfs just by a different name. They lived there, they paid the, the uh, landowner, the lord of the manor um, with their labor on on his fields and um and they were allowed to keep a little for themselves i mean that's futile that's that's going back hundreds of years and it was here 
in the United States. And so employment in factories, you know, did not make like a massive departure from that. And, and we have to be really cognizant of this paternalistic fatherly, but not with a good tinge to it. Right. I rule what you do. And this is still a current in the working world today. Managers get very offended when I say, don't ask your employees about their personal life and don't ask them about their five-year career plan because if they say, I want to be an actor and I want to be on the stage or I want to have my own business, you might say, that's great. Maybe I can help you. But what presumption is in that? Why would you think they would want your help or you'd be the right advisor? And also opening up that, that can of worms, that conversation exposes them to risk. And we have to tell the truth about that. In the United States, we have employment at will. Our jobs are not secure. So we can't be asking people to tell us things that will put them at risk. You, the manager, may say, I would never put this employee's job at risk. But by asking that question, you do. Is your manager going to say, that's fine, let them pursue their acting career? Or are they going to say, well, if we have another layoff, that actor's going to be on the list to lose their job? Managers have to know this. They feel benevolent, but they are not in a position to offer the kind of benevolence that would make a difference to working people. They do not have that power. Therefore, it's not appropriate to ask or expect employees to open themselves up to risk by, by asking them questions that cross a line. Work, yes, in many ways is a social place, but managers in particular have to be very cognizant of that boundary between work and an employee's personal life. Many, I hope most managers know, it's not appropriate to ask someone, what are you doing that you can't work late tonight? Or what are your plans this weekend? You say you can't come to the meeting I want to do at two o'clock Saturday afternoon. Can't you get out of soccer practice? Many managers know that's not cool. Not all of them though, not all of them, but many of them do. But these questions about your long-term career plans, let me help you. Look at being a manager means being a manager. It means assembling talented professionals and helping them work in the best possible way together. I use the example of an orchestral uh, conductor, Lydia Tarr of the recent movie starring Kate Blanchett. Leave her out of it, bad role model. But, but an orchestral conductor is not in general a bad role model for a manager because the presumption is the, the conductor can't play the violin probably as well as the violinists, unless they happen to be a violinist, but they can't play all the instruments as well as the folks in the orchestra, but they can bring those talents together to make beautiful music. So a manager is, is an orchestral conductor, but they are not an unappointed, unasked for life coach or involuntary mentor. They are not, they are not going to force their mentorship on their employees. That's really inappropriate unless you work with new grads, unless you work with people in the early, early stages of their careers, then there's some built-in mentoring always, but otherwise it's the height of presumption, honestly, to assume that when someone comes to work for you, they want your mentoring. I just really am not a fan of that. And it's one reason why I never like to hear people ask the question, what's your greatest weakness? What the hell? Why, why do I have a weakness and why do you get to know about it? Well, I want to help you. Well, who asked for your help? What's your greatest weakness? Let's level the playing field. If you really want to ask someone what's their greatest weakness, you should be willing to tell them your greatest weakness and what you're doing about it. All right. So there's the topic there about managerial concern, well-meaning concern and benevolence versus intrusion. And those two things have, are very close together. And we have to be aware of that boundary.
All right. And we're going to finish up with debate about thank you notes after interviews. Yikes. This is everywhere on social media right now. Are uh, thank you notes uh, still appropriate? Look at should an employee, uh, a job candidate, have to write a thank you note to get the job? Of course not. But there's all kinds of things they shouldn't have to do to get a job. Does a thank you note help you get a job? Yeah, it really does. Not everywhere. Some managers, some technical managers in particular say, I don't want to see your thank you note. I want to know if you can code. That's it. Like, that's not going to help you. Whatever, fine. But in general, yeah, the thank you note will help you get the job. Why? Because it, it you know about uh, the cognitive dissonance, buyer's remorse. You're, you're about to make a purchase, a car, and all of a sudden, you know, you've read all the reviews, but now you're looking on internet forums like, do people like this car? It's a, it's a big decision buying a car. It's the same thing. It's a big decision hiring someone. The note comes in and it's smart and it's polite and it's well-written and, and it's handwritten and the handwriting is nice. It's, you know, it's careful and it's like, okay, I'm hiring this person. It reduces uncertainty about a hiring decision. And it also brings you back to mind for the hiring manager. I have a story um, on Forbes, how to write the perfect post-interview thank you note. So you could find that and it lays out an example and all the details are there. It's like a formula or a recipe for writing your thank you note so you can follow that but it truly does make a difference so is it necessary is it mandatory of course not is it should it be an important part of the hiring process no it really shouldn't but it does make a difference and i encourage you to do it so yeah so i was an hr person for eight million years i love hr and i loved being an hr person but being an hr person really let me see how the way that people are taught to get a job is super broken real broken. They're taught to write their resumes all sounding exactly alike with the same boring business jargon in them. Results-oriented professional with a bottom line orientation. It means nothing. It's tired. It's dead. And it obscures you and the power that you have and you bring to any prospective employer. The way they're taught to interview, to sit there stiff-backed and, 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 you know, on the edge of their seat and ready for the next question like an oral exam. It's demeaning and it doesn't help People get jobs and it doesn't help companies hire great people. So I decided that when I was done being an HR person, I would, I would teach people a better way to get a job and of course teach employers a better way to hire. And that's what I do now. Um, and now I'm training career coaches to help people employ and deploy this uh, new millennium methodology and mindset, human workplace mindset towards job search human voice resumes and pain letters and all of the innovations that I've um, shared and that I teach over the years. So if you are interested in considering becoming a career coach with my help and joining our program called Become a Career Coach to learn how to become a career coach and to launch your own career coaching business and work alongside the other human workplace career coaches who are now working with clients, um, I'd love to hear from you and you can reach me at support at humanworkplace.com and, and, and we could talk about you potentially joining this program and becoming one of our network career coaches, a really fun thing to do and a great way to get out of full-time employment if that's what you want or a great addition to a full-time job if you want a career coach alongside your current job or school or whatever you're doing. All right. And likewise, we have a directory on our site, humanworkplace.com 
slash directory. Those are the career coaches who have finished the program and are actively working with clients now, helping them to put a human voice in their resume to figure out what they want to do next in their career and go after it, helping them understand how to get interviews and how to sail through an interview and ask great questions and answer tricky interview questions, all of that stuff, how to write the thank you note, how to know what they are worth on the marketplace, the whole thing, the methodology for sure, but the mindset, the mindset, number one. So check out the directory and if it looks like something that could be helpful for you, reach out to one of our career coaches and start a conversation. Here's to you. I'll see you next week. You're awesome. And we'll talk soon.